Our scripture lesson for this Sunday comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13. I want us to read verses 1 through 9 and then skip over just a little bit and read verses 18 through 23. And I think you'll see in a moment, some of you know already, why the passage is divided in that fashion. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Would you stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel? That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. And then picking up with verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. For this summer, for these Sundays we have, getting to know one another and I'm beginning my ministry here. I've chosen to go with the gospel lessons appointed for each Sunday, and they're from Matthew this year. And it's a summertime series of sermons, an off-and-on series, you might call it, called Messages That Matter from the Mind of Matthew. And over the years, Luke has always been my favorite gospel. And I think it's the stories, the incredible stories that he tells that you don't find anywhere else. And I've always liked Mark when I'm in a hurry. Mark's gospel just sort of hits the ground running. No birth story or anything. Here we go. You better hang on. And uh, John's gospel, over the last few years, I've come to have a deep appreciation for that. And, And look at it as the gospel from above, the Christ from above. Every time Jesus is mentioned in John's gospel, he's sort of in charge. That doesn't always come through in the other gospels. Even telling his mother... My time's not come. Just let me handle this, please. And then the fourth is is Matthew. And just because if I had to list them and had to list favorites, it's number four, doesn't mean that it's not a powerful gospel. Certainly it is. There are messages here we need to hear. And I hope as we go through this summertime together, we'll hear and see some new things that Matthew has to offer that we'll be reminded of some things we already know. 
Maybe we'll hear a word from God that will comfort and strengthen and encourage. A word, a word from God that will enlighten us. And maybe even a word from God that will disturb us. Because when we read scripture carefully, so often a disturbing word comes through. And we have to examine our hearts. And we have to think about the way we've always done things and the way we've always viewed the world. And it may be that the Spirit through that passage is nudging us or pushing us or shoving us in another direction. And so hopefully some of those things will happen over the course of this summer. Matthew 13, mostly a collection of stories, a collection of parables. The word parable literally means to throw alongside of. And then you'll have something to compare and something to reveal. These short narratives, short stories show us something about the way God is at work in this world by engaging our imaginations, by sometimes overturning our conventions, traditional conventions, things we've always believed and held on to. A parable kind of gouge us a little bit sometimes, kind of prick our conscience a little bit. If we listen to it, it'll say something that seems even countercultural. Oftentimes, and when Jesus told these stories, folks would shake their heads and say, he can't be serious. Probably the most best-known parable of all the story of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus says there was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho on the road by himself, people say, no, that's not right. Nobody's that crazy. So parables have a way of, of kind of making us look at things in a different light. And uh, God's empire is at work now as Jesus tells these parables. And it continues at work even until our day, until God shows us his final dominion, his final sovereignty over all things in heaven and on earth. And in that day and time, dominion over the mighty empire of Rome. For those who've welcomed Jesus into their hearts and followed his ways... These parables can be kind of encouraging. We say, yeah, I get it. I know what he's talking about. That's the Jesus that I know. For other folks that maybe haven't met him or, or don't know him somewhat so well, the parables are, are troubling and um, can be difficult. This parable, the one we want to talk about today, has been called the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds or the parable of the four soils there a lot of ways of looking at it, and we're going to look at it in a way today that maybe is a, is a little bit different. All three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell this story. And Matthew and Mark put it happening beside the sea. And Matthew indicates that Jesus had come out of the house, and if you go back to chapter 9, he had been in a house in Capernaum, Maybe the house of Peter's mother-in-law, a place that he sort of made headquarters when he was in that part of the world. And he had gone down by the side of the sea, and, and he was teaching people, and folk were, were gathering around. When you think about Jesus by the sea, that indicates, I think, his public side of teaching, where others gather around. When it mentions sometimes that Jesus is in the house and talking to folks, they're sort of a private side. Think of Jesus with a, a private side and a public side, not always out with the crowd, sometimes gathered with just his closest friends, sometimes alone with God in prayer. 
Biblical scholars have tried for years to, to get at the real meaning of these parables, to discern what all was being said in them, and, and much progress has been made, but there's still some mystery there. There's still some things about these parables where we kind of scratch our heads and say, well, exactly what was he talking about? And where did this happen? And what group was he addressing these remarks to? Those kind of things we, we struggle with, and we learn, and, and we grow. Now, this story, the one about the sower, has him sowing the seeds. And in Palestinian farming, if I've read correctly, the seeds were sown before the land was plowed. And that seems backwards to some folks, but that's the way it was done. And the seeds landed, some on that ground to be plowed, some on the rocky pass, some in the weeds. The seeds landed everywhere. And another approach to this passage that I might take when it comes around again is all ground is holy ground. So just maybe hold that thought for a moment. Wherever these seeds land, that may be holy ground. And the yield at harvest time, quite naturally, was according to where the seeds had fallen when they were scattered by the sower. Now, a couple of conclusions about Jesus' parables that some scholars have come to recently, and that is some of them have been reinterpreted by the gospel writers in light of the life of the early church. What was going on in the church? And they would take the parables and fashion them or lift them up in such a way that it spoke to the needs and sometimes the predicaments and situations that, that were found in the church. And originally, number two, the parables were not intended to be allegorical. That is, every reference in the parable, every symbol, does not necessarily point to something else. Don't believe that was Jesus' intention. Parables have one main point, as a rule. And when we make it into an allegory and try to stretch it and make something out of everything in the parable, then we, we're in danger of, of losing the meaning of that. So one of the problems when you reinterpret parables, as has happened in this scripture lesson, and you picked up on that, I'm sure, as we read it, the story as Jesus told it, then the reinterpretation just few verses later of, of what this really meant, or the, the interpretation, I meant to say. Verse 19, the seed clearly refers to the word of the kingdom, and it's sown in human hearts, and people don't understand, and some of the seed has fallen beside the path, and it causes folks to treat the parable as an allegory and say, well, each of these places where the seeds landed, that must mean something different, and each of these seeds must stand for something different, and the receptivity of the soil to the implanted seed. When I was thinking about all this and, and trying to pull this together in my own mind, and I apologize ahead of time for telling this story, but whenever I talk about soil and soil samples and agriculture in the Bible, it reminds me of a story I heard a few years back. And I think most of you know by now I'm a Georgia Tech fan, but I have many, many Georgia friends and so don't be offended but there was a guy who had lived in the city all of his life and he decided he wanted to move to the country and he said I'm going to go out there and I'm going to grow me some chickens so he ordered a dozen chickens and he planted them head first and the chickens didn't live very long so he was talking to one of his friends about it and his friend said well maybe you ought to plant them feet first and so he ordered some more chickens planted them feet first they lived a little bit longer than the first bunch, but, but they didn't do so well. And he was talking to his friend again. His friend said, well, I understand they've got a pretty good Department of Agriculture up there in Athens, Georgia. 
Um, why don't you just write to one of those professors up there and ask him for his advice on growing chickens? So he did. And he told him what he had done, planted them head first, planted them feet first, nothing was working, and he wrote this in the letter. And a few days later, he got a letter back from the chairman of the agricultural department at the University of Georgia, and the guy said, well, I've read your letter, and I'm not really sure what your problem is, but if you'll send me a soil sample, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, you'll get your turn, I, I promise. <laughs> the verses after that, that which is sown, refers to different kinds of people, or so the thinking has been. And the various soils now signify the trying situations in which people find themselves in this world and prevent them from becoming fruitful. And this, arrogal, this allegorical interpretation leaves a lot to be desired, doesn't it, if we stop and think about it, because it's saying in a way that those seeds that fell on the fertile ground were just lucky. They were just fortunate. They landed in the right place, and the conditions were right, so their lives developed in a wonderful way, and they grew up, and they were fruitful. And it all had to do with the luck of the draw or the luck of the sow, so to speak. They produced fruit. And they haven't had to struggle with the difficulties in this world and the work that goes along with life in this world and the temptations that come our way. And, and surely that's not what Jesus, that's not what the writer of Matthew's gospel, what Matthew is trying to say to us, is it? That doesn't fit into our understanding of the faith. The general tone of the message is clear. Those who receive the seed, the word of God, the word of the kingdom, understand. And it's not merely intellectual, but it's something that happens in the depths of their being, in the depths of their heart, to comprehend not just with the head, but with the heart, and to realize that to be, for there to be a harvest, for there to be an abundant harvest, for them to live fruitfully, there's more involved than just a, a luck of the draw kind of thing. And Matthew has a perception about those who receive the seed and understand and those who don't. And he speaks of understanding in Old Testament terms, and that is it's not just an intellectual understanding, not a classroom understanding, okay, I've got that, let's move on to the next point. But it's something that becomes a part of who they are and, and takes root in their heart. Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding that I may know your law and keep it and observe it with my whole heart. Understanding is more than just intellectual assent to a particular concept. It has to do with that concept becoming a part of who we are, the depths of our faith, the depth of our heart. So for Matthew, the people who hear the word and understand to those whom it has been given. And it's by grace and not by human effort that that word begins to grow in our hearts and to change our being. So what do we do with the parable and its interpretation by the early church. We're free to look at this in, in different ways, obviously, and this may be a little bit new for, for some to think about Jesus' words to begin with in 1 through 9, and then the interpretation that Matthew put on Jesus' words so that it might apply to and fit the situation in the church of his day. And isn't that what preaching and teaching has always been about? to take the words of God, to take the understanding, and to see how they fit and what they say to us and to our church and 
to our families in, in this day and time. If the suggestion is correct that the parable originally spoke of the great harvest that God would produce despite temporary setbacks, then we can use it in the same way. And we can say that it speaks to our evangelistic efforts. And by that, evangelism, an old word, but a good church word, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. To tell others, this is what he's done for me. And this is what he can do for you. And this is a difference it can make in our world. And our responsibility then is to scatter the seed, to sow the seed. Only God can make it grow. Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We've got our part to play, our role to play in all of this. But if things are to grow, if churches, if human hearts are to expand, it's all due to the grace of God. And we can't do it on our own. I was thinking toward the end of the week when I was pulling this together about some of the seeds that the church has sown across the years. And then I was thinking about seeds that are being sown by, by this church, by Noonan First. And every day I'm learning of new ministries and sub-ministries and people in the church who are doing ministry in the name of Christ. And it's, it's just overwhelming. It's amazing. It's exciting. Such a difference is being made in this church and in this community and around this world. And those seeds are being sown, but we sow them and we trust God. What are some of those? Some of them are huge. Some of them are small. Perhaps we bump into someone in the grocery store that we haven't seen in church in a while. And we tell them we miss them. And we'd love for them to come on home. Or maybe it's a card or a call or a countless act of kindness. Or an invitation to sit down and share a cup of coffee or a meal together. Or some words to a frightened and insecure child who's passed present and future appears to be filled with fear and uncertainty. Sowing seeds, that's our responsibility. Only God can give the increase. And all of that, I believe, from the perspective of our Lord in the first nine verses of the passage this morning. On the other hand, Matthew's interpretation of the parable, the second part of our lesson, verses 18 through 23, encourages us as the church to look at this to understand how it speaks to us. Folks today need to be warned, and, and warned maybe is too stern of a word, need to be warned slash reminded of how important hearing and knowing the Word of God is. For the most part, Christians in this world today have not known the kind of persecution that Christians have in days past. Now, I know there are places, I know around this globe where Christians are losing their lives. But sometimes we, we use the term too loosely. And we think of minor inconveniences as persecution, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness, the things that will choke the word. We must pray for that, that gift of understanding so that what we believe in our minds may be acted out in our everyday lives. As we come to that understanding, and sometimes there will be Opposition, sometimes there will be a ridicule at least. We need one another to prop one another up. So let me pause for a moment and, and tell you where I think we are with all of this. I don't want you to be hanging out at the bus station while I've moved on to the airport. But 
the, the first part of the scripture lesson is Jesus telling the story. The sower, the seeds, the soils, it's pretty straightforward. The second part of the lesson is an interpretation of the parable, treating it as if it were an allegory, though technically it, it's not, and leading scholars and others to discuss whether Jesus was speaking the words in the second part of the passage or whether these were the words of Matthew, that he was trying to address all of this to the church in his day and time and uh, to help them along their way. I hope that my bringing that up in that fashion doesn't cause anyone to want to throw me under the church bus. So please, before you do that, we, we can talk about it some more. But if the early church interpreted this parable of Jesus to speak to its needs and its predicament and its situation in the world, then why can't we do the same thing after 2,000 years? Don't we have needs and, and situations arise? And sometimes we find ourselves in a predicament individually or as families or as a church family. What if our situation... Our predicament, our needs were similar to those that were experienced 2,000 years ago when Matthew was interpreting these words for the church of his day. Four needs, four responses. Let's see if we can, can bring this in for a landing by looking at those. First, an on-the-surface response. This is from verse 19, and again, I refer back to Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. Sometimes I just turn there, and it helps me to to get a passage that I've been struggling with. He said, when anyone hears news of the kingdom and doesn't take it in, it just remains on the surface. And so the evil one comes along and plucks it right out of the person's heart. This is the seed that the sower scatters on the road. The roadbed would have been hard, would have been packed down by constant traffic, would not have been the first place that anybody would have intentionally gone out to plant a garden, would it? And that happens to our hearts. Things come along in our lives and we don't handle it so well. And our warm, beating hearts of flesh gradually become cold, hard hearts of stone. And the only advantage that I can think of to a hard heart of stone is that it's difficult to break. There's a troubling expression it troubles me anyway. It's in the book of Exodus, and it has to do with the children of Israel trying to get out of slavery. And a recurring phrase that happened during the season when all the plagues were being sent, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I've always had a hard time with that. But I do know this. A hard heart... And a hard head or a deadly combination. Second, a rocky response. From verse 20, the seed cast in the gravel. This is the person who very early on hears the word of God and responds with enthusiasm. They're just so excited. But there's no soul of character. And so when the emotion begins to wear off, and difficulty arrives, there's nothing to show for it. These are folk who base their whole faith on feelings. But when the feelings falter and fail, as sooner or later they always do, then what? 
These are the words, words. These are the ones who at first anyway get so excited and you've known some of these folks and maybe you've been there. These are the folks who just say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to charge the gates of Satan's kingdom with a water pistol. We got this. But the closer they get. And then third, there's a, a deep weeds response. The seed cast in the weeds and the person who hears the word of the kingdom, but then fears and worries and delusions about getting more and wanting everything under the sun, strangle what was heard, and nothing comes of it. Which raises for me the question, how much stuff does it take to fill a hole in a human heart? And for some crazy reason, I think back to the first time I ever walked into a brand smart place was built like a fortress, like a castle, and there was more stuff in there than you could shake a stick at. And just so much, everything. And I want to say, Lord, have mercy, but the truth is, the holes in our hearts are bottomless pits, and it doesn't matter how much stuff we pour in there, how many resources we pour in there, we're still not filled. Our hearts are still missing something. They're empty. And the hole only seems to get deeper. Only by the love and mercy and grace of God can that emptiness ever be eliminated and filled up. Fourth, on a more positive note, thanksgiving. Thank goodness there is an abundant harvest response in verse 23. The seed cast on good ground is the person who takes the good news, hears it, produces a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. What would an abundant harvest look like when we look out at the world when we look at our mission as God's church it would be changed lives and restored relationships and broken families who are mended and put back together the hungry fed those who hunger and thirst after righteousness filled up those who are desperate and despairing given a word of hope and encouragement not to give up or give in but to continue on their journeys an abundant harvest, eternal life, beginning now and never ending experienced in Christ. An abundant harvest. Four very different responses. Which one of these do we, church, do we as individuals, which one of these responses do we most closely resemble? What would be the results of a soil sample taken from the depths of the heart of our church? What would be the results of a soil sample taken from your heart and my heart? Amen.